Hey everybody, Tom Salome of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. I'm here with my enormous microphone. I hope you can hear me on this podcast and see me if you're watching this video. We've got an enormous episode for you. We're going to be speaking with Eric Fain. He's the CEO of a company called Procerion. A little later in the podcast, Procerion closed on a 57.7 million Series E funding. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about its device, Aortics, which is a percutaneous mechanical circulatory support device. I'm sure you've heard of those before. This one's a little bit different, though. Uh, we'll talk about their clinical trials. And of course, Eric's career. Uh, he's a former senior leader at St. Jude, went back to his startup roots, and it was uh, wonderful to connect with him about his story. Before that, we'll hear from Santosh Iyer of Active Surgical. He's leading a, uh, a program that's kind of, in well, is in conjunction with Harvard for high school students in the Boston area, although I'm sure other students would be uh, eligible as well who have an interest in learning more about the medtech industry. Uh, it's called Moonshot. You can go to moonshot.school for more information. But our conversation centered a bit on the program, but also more broadly about how our industry is viewed by uh, young people and perhaps things we can do to uh, encourage new folks to enter, enter the market. So uh, I, I hope you'll enjoy that conversation and you have some ideas. Please do contribute to, uh, to any discussions on social media about that. And of course, you connect with uh, Santos Iyer at uh, Active Surgical if you want to find out more information. But of course, go to moonshot.school for uh, more information about that. Uh, before we begin the episode, I want to remind you that Device Talks Boston is happening on May 1st and May 2nd at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. It's going to be a great two days. We're adding programming. We're adding networking opportunities. We'll be sending out emails explaining all of this and more. Go to Boston. .devicetalks.com. We had a great time last year. This is going to be twice as good, and I hope we'll see you there. Finally, uh, please do register for our upcoming episode of Device Talks Tuesdays, which is happening at, uh, on February 13th at 4 p.m., brought to you by PTI. It's going to be a great conversation about injection molding. So check that out. Uh, light on the presentation, heavy on the conversation. So uh, if you've got questions, bring them. You can watch live or you can watch on demand. Finally, uh, I don't, personal note, I'm going to be off uh, next week, the final two days of next week. I'm actually going to uh, Purdue University to see a, a men's basketball game. Very excited to see my son and to see the Boilermakers in person. So uh, I don't think we'll have an episode of Device Talks Weekly next week. Things may happen, fates may conspire, and a, a plump uh, interview opportunity might land in my lap and we'll get one together for you. But at this, as of this time, I don't anticipate having a Device Talks weekly episode out next week, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. So if I don't talk to you next week, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. All right. With all of that being said, let's get this episode started. All right. You ready for this? Ready. sir doing well doing well back from uh back from la which was not sunny while i was there oh you were in anaheim actually right oh, yeah. Anaheim. yeah and i just you know, that's what people always something <laughs> from southern california I always correct you wow well, you know that's true anaheim exactly is there yeah 
I, I was flying in and out of LAX, so I mean, it was, it was close yeah. enough. You know? That is close, close enough. enough. You deserve enough. A, medal, a medal for that. Uh, yeah. So you had a, you and Jim Hammer and had a lot of great coverage on uh, on LinkedIn. A lot of videos, a lot of conversations. Yeah, uh, a lot of things posted. I'm sure up on the news sites as well. So it was a productive week for you. Yeah, it was a productive week. I mean that that show is just huge. I mean you could just get lost in that in that place um i i think uh the device talks events are better for overall networking <laughs> you know, and, personally you know me, i mean I, a little yeah. biased but you know <laughs> if i had to choose <laughs> if i had yeah you know. <laughs> being editorial director of device talks i'd certainly choose device talks boston which is happening on may 1st and 2nd don't miss it. No. Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. But no, you guys had some great coverage on there, and I'm glad uh, you met with a lot of our great sponsors. And, and uh, Absolutely. So it's always good to get their stories out there. It, so. was, it was good to see the uh, medical device industry supplier space, spaces, you know, as vibrant as ever. And, you know, they're, they're, they're working on all kinds of really cool innovations. Great. All right. Well, uh, let us uh, bring in our, our guest. We've got with us uh, Santa Shire. And uh, Santa, you're with Active Surgical. What's your title there? I should have looked it up before we uh, started talking. Uh, director of strategic marketing. Okay, but you're—I don't know. Can we talk about what you're doing right now? You're actually uh, in a bit of a break, right? Yeah, I'm on parental leave right now, taking care yeah. of my son. So, yeah. Oh, congrats! <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> it's always I, always a fun time. I don't miss it at all. But uh, is this your—is this your first kid? Second kid. Oh, awesome! Yeah, so I've been I, around you know block a few times. So, I've, I've got—I've got three. We have a seven-year-old, and then. Like uh, we ended up having two five-year-olds. So. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, so you have at plenty. the same time. Uh, yeah. Yes, Tom. We have twins. Yes. 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 So congratulations, Santos, for that. And uh, and uh, again, it's an exciting time. So uh, enjoy it. They do grow Absolutely. up fast. You'll be you'll be attending college or taking them to college before you know it. I'll actually be. Heading out to see my older one uh, end of next week. We're going to go out to see a Purdue wow. Boilermakers game. So that'll my be gosh. fun. Did it feel like he just like went to college in a blink of an eye? Was it like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dropping uh, this guy off at the, at the bus stop, you know, you know, making sure he has his lunch money, and now he's like off to college. Like, you know. Yes and no. At the time when you're raising them, it seems like it takes forever. And then once they finally are out of the house, you're like, oh, all right, well. That seems that that seems like not so long ago, but uh, at no t- at no point during raising kids do you ever think like God, oh, this is just happening so quickly. Because Tom, do you have new hobbies? Hard. Do you have new hobbies now? I need, I mean, are, you, are you building birdhouses? Or? I, I need a hobby. I was actually t- yeah. mentioning that to my wife. That like the only thing I think about laying, you know, laying in bed in the middle of the night when you're awake, like is work. I'm like, I need to obsess about something else. We should do a so, LinkedIn poll. Have people like Tom needs a hobby now. We need to get. Yeah, you know, I think that's probably idea. the best way to choose yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, anyway, Santa. So you're yeah. we're actually here to talk about <laughs> yeah. uh, about Moonshot. Uh, which we had to go off the rails here, Santa. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit about. Well, first, just talk a bit about yourself. How did you find your way into the into the medtech industry? What, what drew you? Because you're kind of you're kind of uh, working to help others find their way here as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, my, my interest was very much in robotics, uh, you know, and, and AI, you know, before AI was a thing. Uh, wasn't really even connected to the healthcare world when I was in high school, but uh, there was this really uh, interesting experience that I had um, in grade 10 where I saw this Johns Hopkins neurosurgeon who was using a robot for brain surgery. 
mm-hmm. um, and that really changed the way I thought about using technology uh, to help people in a very in a much more direct way. And so I kind of stumbled onto medical devices, uh, and I said, "Hey, this is a really cool way to you know combine my passion for engineering." To helping people and so you know throughout the years i've been in a variety of engineering and technical roles and more recently pivoted uh, more to commercial functions and mm-hmm. so that visceral experience is what i am trying to capture in moonshot because a lot of kids these days are seeing things like chat gpt all this cool ai stuff autonomous vehicles and what i want to open their minds to is to say look hey you can like take a lot of that and apply it uh, to saving people's lives. And so that's what Moonshot's really about is like channeling that interest into an application where you can help people and giving that hands-on immersive uh, learning uh, for these kids to open their eyes. Chris, did you have one of those moments of clarity with journalism? Was there a moment when you knew you wanted to get into writing or was it a gradual thing? I think I had a big, you know, I went to Ohio State and, you know, I think my uh, my biggest challenge was that every class I took, I was like really fascinated in it. I'm, I'm just, I'm just I just have this, I just am fascinated by everything and learning everything. And there was just like, kind of like one really critical moment that where I was just like, like, well, I should go into journalism. I could go find out about everything from all kinds oh, of okay. people, you know? And plus I, you know, there was one day I was sitting outside. I had to be outside the journalism building at the campus. And, you know, some of the editors came out to, you know, hang out and chat. And I was like, these are, these are cool people. Like, I, wanna, <laughs> I should get on the student newspaper. Yeah, yeah that's, that's it. I had a, I had a, a experience similar to your center. It's just, mm-hmm. I took a program um, when I was in high school. We went to the Boston Herald once a week and toured the Boston Herald, saw the printing press and all that. And the day wow. I stepped into that newsroom, and it was just like this wretched, dirty place with newspapers stacked <laughs> everywhere, just people yelling and all all this going on. And I was like, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to I work at a place like this. I ultimately don't, but just the whole, the whole energy of journalism just kind of captured me and never let go. So I'm, sh- I'm sure at the Herald they were using the King's English around the room, right? They were right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh, great stuff. So, all right, well, let's talk about Moonshot. So uh, the, the, the URL is moonshot.school for anyone who wants to check it out. But uh, Santos, tell us a bit about what it is and, and what is the program is trying to do. Yeah, so, so really the program is, uh, well, there's a variety of uh, – sub-programs within the broader vision and mission. But, you know, broadly, the program is, as I said before, try to inspire kids to get into biomedical engineering, you know, whether you're interested in medicine or engineering or computer science, all these fields uh, interact in one way or another uh, when when you're, especially when you're treating patients. And so it's really to explore, uh, expose the kids to design thinking, to interdisciplinary team collaboration, give them that expert mentorship from the industry and then also allow them to play these roles. So whether you're a data scientist or product manager or surgeon or mechanical engineer, really play that role out um, and really get a feel for what it's like to be that role uh, as close as possible to the real thing. So, you know, we, you know, sort of cornerstone to the program is this is this Lego surgical robotic system, mm-hmm. which is really mimicking a lot of the like uh, robotic endoluminal systems out there. Um, and through that, uh, we have a variety of clinical challenges that uh, students get to do. So, you know, this two-week summer program that we launched last year with Harvard, that one is focused on lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And wow. the Lego robot is not the end solution. It is their template. So rather than like machining, going and machining parts like you would in a traditional medical device uh, setup where you have to go to a 
you know, rapid prototyping place or get stuff manufactured. Here you get a system right out of the bat. And then you can iterate on that extremely quickly. You can integrate endoscopic instrumentation and really figure out what is the optimal solution to solve the clinical challenge. In this case, it's diagnosing and treating. So what's really fascinating is when you don't have the same cognitive entrenchment that I, I guess a lot of us do being in this industry, kids are way right. more creative. They're not biased the same way. You see some really cool things. And so I'll give oh, you an wow. example. Uh, a kid figured out that, hey, like, by the way, we didn't tell him about Oris or DaVinci Ion, but he himself figured out a controller was the best way to control the system. And so he used ChatGPT to code it, like completely from scratch. Um, wow. He went to Target. Fantastic. He got it. He got a controller, and then boom, it like wow. worked. So that's the kind of creativity we unlock, and especially with generative AI, like opportunities are endless because yeah. it's all coding. So I'm really excited to see you know where this program goes. Um, and actually, we're giving them a lot of things that really don't exist in the industry yet. So you know, with like lung cancer treatment. You know, normally you'd have to do that surgically. We're doing this endoscopically. Another version of the program we're launching is for endoscopic spine surgery. Spine surgery is still done through a microscope or done open. We're doing this endoscopically. So that is not even really well adopted yet. And how could you imagine doing that robotically? So we're really trying to push the envelope with a set of people that, you know, on paper may not have the skills, but we give them that creativity. We give them that platform to build and showcase those solutions. And you know, all of this, by the way, from a, from a parent perspective as well, we are teaching them like real skills, right? So beyond design thinking, a lot of our courses also reemphasize uh, concepts in like physics. Mm -hmm. wow. So, you know, the spine surgery course, for example, is going to teach them some of the hardest concepts in AP physics. One, and I don't know if all of you, you know, ever had to take AP courses when you were in high school, but that's like one of the most dreaded courses if you want to get into a STEM major. Like no one wants to do it, even if you want to do engineering. So we're taking that and we're putting it into this platform and making it more accessible, right? So we want to like demystify. We want to encourage people to, you know, if you're, if you're a doctor, get comfortable with the physics. If you're an engineer, get more comfortable with the biology because oftentimes yeah. these people live in silos. And so that's really the intention behind, you know, what Moonshot's doing. And yeah, a lot of amazing things have happened today. I can't wait to see what's going to happen this summer. I want to ask some broader questions in a minute, but just particular, so I'm sure people are wondering, how, how long a period uh, are these, how many sessions are you running? Are they a week, a two-week, longer? Uh, what are some of the details that people should Yeah, know? so uh, there's there's two flavors of Moonshot. Uh, there's mm -hmm. Moonshot Foundations, which is really for your, it's more introductory. Um, this will focus on those AP Physics concepts, grade 9 and 10 primarily. Those are one-week programs. I believe there are five sessions offered. Um, and then Moonshot Visionaries is a two-week program. It's only held once. And that's typically for grade 11 and 12 students who have some sort of background in coding or have done some yeah. sort of research or have an interest in pre-med. Um, so that one is a lot more selective uh, because, you know, we want to make that one more, more like a challenge, um, you know, getting industry people in and, and all of that. So. Yep, that's that's the general kind of flavor of, of, of Moonshot. I love how you're doing a combo of both engineering and biology because that, that's one thing, you know, over, you know, I've, I've been covering this industry now for, oh goodness, a dozen years. And that's one of the things that always surprised me would be going to med tech conferences with engineers and people would be urging them to take biology classes. And I, that, that was a, that was a surprise for me that, that, you know, that, that, that there, there are many engineers in the industry who, 
I mean, they're making medical devices. They need to make them work. But as far as like they, they don't have a deep understanding of the biology. Absolutely. We actually had a kid come uh, last year who was who did like first robotics. He knew nothing about healthcare, but he saw a robot. He saw a Lego robot. He's like, I want to do that. Um, and then now he's actually going more into the biomedical track because prior to this, he didn't even know like he could apply his skills from first in the healthcare space. So that's a really cool, you know, testament to, you know, what, what this program is doing for these, for these really bright kids. I think that the, you know, it it really seems to me that the younger generations right now have a a really good understanding of coding, but as far as like getting your hands onto, onto something and working with things, I mean, I mean, whenever there's something broken in my house and somebody shows up, they're usually my age and, and older. I mean, how, how do we, you know, kind of, you know, get, get get younger people to get interested in actually like tinkering with things and you know actually like you know actually working on on physical things absolutely and one thing i will say is at least for me one of the challenges i saw when i was doing engineering is we often learn things like like a textbook like oh today you're going to learn math today you're going to learn intro physics then you're going to learn chemistry but like real life doesn't work that way you see a problem and then you work backwards right so we're really trying to get kids to be more inquisitive and then learn those skills as they see problems and then sort of get all the supporting skills to master that. So uh, I I think that's a very different way of learning. And I think that's the future of education. It's going to be very problem-based, very hands-on. And and yeah, I I think it's going to unlock a lot more in terms of retention as well. And by the way, everything in medical devices is that way. Like everything in medical devices that you start with the need and then you work backwards, right? You don't start with, I have a tool and then I have to find something. So yeah, the worst moments in MedTech was when somebody like, look at this cool tech, you know, it's like, well, right. yeah, it's, it's cool, but what do we do with it? You know, so exactly. like, to find those needs. Um, it, it almost reminds me of that line in, um, there's a line in Oppenheimer that I really liked where it was just like theory will only get you so far. Like, you know, right. it sounds like you got the theory, but you gotta, you know, you got to actually figure out how to build it and serve a need. So right. are there kids coming into the, uh, the program and are, are you seeing, are, Guess are we seeing in a larger sense? Are they coming in with an idea of biomed, of medtech? And you, you sort of addressed this earlier, but it, it is always amazes me. And I'm in Boston, and you're in Boston, and Chris, you're in Minnesota. That this industry doesn't have the same yeah. romance around the tech industry because you can't you can't start an app company and sell it for a million dollars in three years and drive a nice car. I don't know why it doesn't yeah. have that because it's a very it's the coolest industry out there, and I don't know why it doesn't capture the imagination yeah. and spirit of kids as much as it should. What what what's the attitude of the kids coming in? Are they going in aware of this industry existing, or are you opening some eyes with this program? So a lot of them actually, weirdly enough, um, come in because uh, they want to do something with their technology background or interest or science background interest in medicine, mm-hmm. but they don't really know how to connect those things. And a lot of them actually have like personal experiences. So actually a vast majority of our kids that came in, unfortunately had a relative or someone else that had cancer. Oh, interesting. So for them, it's a very personal story. So <clears throat> that I think was super interesting. And I think that personal story, I think, really grounds them and like says, huh, how can I like take what I have and like help others so something like that doesn't happen again? So that's great. Um, and, and yeah, by the time a lot of them walk out, especially the ones who are non-medical, um, they're like, wow, yeah, I didn't know that this is how I could apply my technology, technical skills. And, um, and, and, and yeah, I mean... A lot of them, I, I do ask them, hey, are you going to, you know, are you going to go to Tesla or Apple uh, longer term? And they're, and, and they say like, hey, look, I mean, 
certainly it's an option, right? It's an option. I mean, e even if they end up going to Tesla or Apple, I think still understanding how to impact people, I think is still powerful. I think medical devices and industry tells you how to connect what you're doing from a technology perspective to help people. And so whether that's in climate change or whether, even if that's through tech, I, I think that philosophy is really important. I think in our industry, that's sort of built in by design. Absolutely. No, and I'm speaking as the totally. dad of an engineer who wants to go into aerospace, SpaceX and all that stuff, but yep. uh, I haven't, I haven't given up hope yet. Chris, I'm <laughs> in Minnesota in terms of like, again, in Boston, there is certainly a large med tech industry, but I'm growing up when it was smaller than, but even now I don't, I don't go to parties and people are like, Oh, medical devices. I know what that is. It usually requires some explanation. Is it different in Minnesota? Do you, does it have a, a, a firmer grasp of kind of the social consciousness there? You know, I think so. Just because I mean, like, like basically like even on my street, there's a Medtronic engineer on my street, you know, like uh, my, my kid's soccer team, there's one of the other soccer dads is a, is a Medtronic engineer. So, I mean, I mm -hmm. think there's definitely, I mean, we have a lot of fortune 500 companies around the twin cities, like much more for the size of the city actually. Sure. But, yep. but I mean, you know, Medtronic is like one of the really big, big employers around here and, you know, Abbott and Boston scientific have a lot, of employees around here as well. In fact, there's more Boston scientific employees here than uh, in Massachusetts. But um, <laughs> so I mean, just 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 having that uh, density, you get to you get to run into a lot more people who uh, who work for the industry. But the, um, cough, and, the cough was a nice touch, Chris. I like that. Yeah. Though. Yeah, that very, just, very well just, I mean, I love Massachusetts, but I gotta I gotta, <laughs> no, gotta, no. gotta, gotta throw a little shade, right, man? I mean, uh, if I had shade to throw, believe me, it would have been thrown already. So so don't. <laughs> I appreciate, I pr respect, respect for the shade throne. So, Sandra, where, where do folks go from here? I mean, have we missed anything about the program? Anything else I should be asking? Uh, I think no. people should go to the website. Is it moonshot.school? Is that the place? They yeah. Should and then, up? and then scroll all the way to the bottom and you have to like, we actually offer this to Harvard Medical School. So you need to actually apply through Harvard Medical School. So if okay. you go all the way to the bottom, you can just click there and you can, you can oh, apply. Yeah. So. Enrolled for um, a collaborator. So, if I'm uh, if I'm the parent of a high school kid and, and uh, I'm wondering if my kid's a good fit, just just give us the profile once again. Who who is uh, who's a good fit for this? Uh, honestly, I think intellectual curiosity is the most important. We've had mm -hmm. kids interested in art, design, engineering, medicine, and and business actually. Uh, so yeah. we are not trying to go after some you know uh, typical stereotypical profile. Even if you don't have a background in STEM, but you have an interest in STEM, we encourage you to apply because, again, I think the goal here is awareness. Mm -hmm. I think the main thing is intellect, like demonstrated history of intellectual curiosity and really taking something and running with it, uh, because that's what's going to ultimately, you know, that's the skill that's ultimately going to be transferable to Moonshot and, you know, making making the kids successful. There. And, and where are the classes or the, the, the where are things physically held? At it's Harvard? at Harvard Medical School. So Medical it's going to, yeah, it's going to be the summer at Harvard Medical School. Yeah. So, you know, we'll be right in the center of the campus and students will get to kind of walk in campus. You know, we have a lot of really good research lab partners, industry partners uh, that are collaborating with us. So, and do you have any designs on, on scaling? If one of Chris's neighbors hears this and says, we need to have this in, in Minnesota. Uh, Ab absolutely. Yeah. I think the goal is to partner with universities that. Uh, in, in, in cities that have a strong medical device or life sciences presence. So certainly, you know, Minnesota, uh, the Bay Area, San Diego, uh, potentially even, you know, in, in the South as well. So yeah, definitely, definitely broader goals for, for expanding. 
All right. Fantastic. Well, it's great stuff. Again, the website is moonshot.school, as it's spelled and as it sounds. Uh, it's a great program. I, I would have been a good fit for my son, but he's already in college. We'll, we'll see where the 14-year-old's at, but not there yet. We'll get him there. But, uh, I, feel bad that I'm, I feel bad that I'm not aware of it entirely, but I, I do know that the University of Minnesota, I mean, they've got a medtech engineering program there. They have uh, – actually, the business school has like a really great track program for people in the industry who want to go get an MBA and become leaders in the industry. I, 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 I am going to go and look now, you know, like what kind of uh, you know, fellowships are available around here in the medtech space because um, if, if we don't have it here, and I, I, I'd, I'd be surprised if we didn't, we should. Absolutely. You only have six or seven years before your kid, your oldest, is going to be ready. <laughs> there we go. Get, get yeah, cracked. Right. Harry says he wants to be an engineer. Now I got to like maybe I should like kind of like just get him towards like you know med tech. Like I need to take him to the Bakken right. Museum soon or something. Right. So, you can't go. push him. You can't push him, Chris. Let him no, find just, us. Let, let him find, find his way. <laughs> should I just leave like pacemakers around the house or something? Yeah. Let <laughs> yeah, him find his go. way and, and then guilt him when yeah. he's older. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there you go. Like this pacemakers put bread on the table though. <laughs> All right. All right, Santos. Thanks for, for, uh, for sharing pleasure. these details. Yeah, it was really great. Thank you both. Well, Eric Fain, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. I'm anxious to hear Priscian's story. It's uh, got a very interesting technology. I want to understand more about that and also find out a little bit about the financing you received, raised recently. I'm sure it was received, but it didn't just come to you. I'm sure you had to work <laughs> hard for it. <laughs> we want to get into that as well. But first, as always, we'd like to learn about our guests. Eric, how did you find your way to the medical device industry? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good story. So I've uh, been interested in medicine really just growing up and ended up going to medical school at Stanford, which brought me out to the West Coast and was doing a lot of research while I was in medical school in cardiology, specifically in the electrophysiology field. And as I was moving through uh, Stanford, ended up doing uh, some research, worked with a cardiologist who's really a luminary in the electrophysiology field, Roger Winkle, who actually the very first patient with an implantable defibrillator. And there was a startup company called VentureTex that was being formed while I was, uh, I guess, in my around my last year of school. And Roger was the uh, on the medical advisory board, and I got involved doing some research with them as well. And then when I finished medical school, I decided at the time I was going to just take one year off between medical school and starting my internship and residency, and work with VentureTex. And then uh, once I got there and Got involved with the technology on that side. Became really interested as an applied math major as an undergraduate and all kind of fit in well. And I decided to uh, step away from hands-on medicine and be involved on uh, the medical device development side. But your intention was to be a doctor going into all this? You wanted to be a physician? Yeah, no, I, uh, I had full intention to go through, finish my training, probably end up on the electrophysiology side. Needed to make that phone call to my mom and let her know I was, I was going to say, did you break your mother's yeah, heart? No, was, uh, I, actually, everybody was really supportive. All the professors at Stanford. I mean, everybody saw it as an opportunity. And uh, but it was, uh, yeah, definitely a, a change in uh, career paths, but worked out, worked out real well for me. But this was, it's an interesting time to do this. I'd be looking at the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, obviously, there was a metal device industry, but it's not what it is today. What was the deciding factor that, you know, you could have gone through a very stable and at the time lucrative career as a physician, and it's obviously still lucrative to a degree, 
or you can gamble on this industry, this nascent industry that's growing. What was it? Was it the gadgetry? Was it the technical issues? What was it that lured you away from a seemingly more secure path into medicine? Yeah, I think it was a combination of just the technology really piqued my interest and was a way to really think about helping patients, but on a broader scale than what I could do just on a one-on-one basis and, and really try to make a difference because the devices that were being developed were really groundbreaking, really getting after huge unmet clinical needs. And the combination of the two really, really drew me to that. And you were at VentureTex for 10 years. The jobs you have listed on LinkedIn, but maybe there are more, but you had manager of clinical research and then VP of systems development. What was that process like? Are those kind of glorified titles and you were doing a little bit of everything or were these very specific tasks that you had at hand? Yeah, you know, it was a small, small startup. And so yeah. wore a lot of hats, but main focus was in the beginning was uh, working to specify the device and do continued research there to get to a final design. And then then uh, it was really kind of building out to be able to build a system for usability. And then I had responsibilities for the field clinical engineering group that were the folks on the ground going into the uh, the hospitals, working with the physicians, developing study protocols and, and things like that. So it really was just a combination of things that allowed me to wear a lot of different hats. And in fact, allowed me to really learn about a, a wide range of skills to in, in terms of getting a startup to be successful. Now, VentureTex would go on to be acquired by St. Jude in 97, and you were at St. Jude for a good long yeah. time after that. What was that transition like from the startup to the big company? Did you like the lifestyle of a, of a larger medical device experience? Uh, I'd say it grew obby, let's put it that way. It was a, yeah. it was a, big, uh, a big change. <laughs> you know, you have uh, as a startup, especially a single product startup, you really have one team, everybody's focused on the same thing. Everybody's, you know, going in the same direction. There's limited distractions with other outside influences and things. And, you know, when you get to a big multinational company, it, it is very different and people have different priorities and sometimes different agendas. And, but again, great learning experience. And, and St. Jude was a really great experience for me. The culture there was, even though it was a bigger, bigger company, really kept the innovation focus, really was able to stay agile, make decisions quickly. I really enjoyed it. It was a, it was great working with with that team as well. And you became president of two different businesses and ultimately a group president there. What was your path to leadership? And was it again something that you had designs on that you wanted to lead a business, or did that grow in you as well? How did that path come to be? Yeah, I'd say I. I mean, different people have different approaches to how they want to drive their career. For me, I was a, I, I never had like a predefined in my own mind, predefined path to, to get to really? leadership. It was, I was really interested in, in just learning about as many things as possible, taking on responsibilities as the opportunities presented themselves. So yeah, I was able to run the cardiac rhythm management division. We had acquired a neuromodulation business that existed as a separate division and opportunity came up to take on that as well that had a lot of crossover in terms of the technology itself. And then continued to just uh, expand the uh, responsibilities, eventually having responsibility over the full St. Jude portfolio. And, and along the way, just being able to work with a variety of people in, in all the disciplines that you would think in, in, in building a business. So whether it's manufacturing, whether it's marketing, whether it's sales, HR, finance, uh, all those things, you know, being able to have the opportunity to be involved, take on things where I could contribute, but not be the expert. 
really build the team and work with people and build that sort of culture and, and environment. Really was a great experience and got me well prepared, not only to uh, be a leader at St. Jude, but also to go on to the next role as uh, being CEO of a startup company. I'm not a planned person either. I never really thought I'd be doing what I'm doing. And before that, didn't think I was doing that, would be doing that. But I think the advice given to most younger executives is have a plan, you know, really kind of step by step, inch by inch. Do you, in advising young people, do you say, build a plan, have a plan? I, did, I didn't have a plan, but it worked out for me. Do you advise them to have a plan? Or should we be giving blanket advice to all folks? Is it really just kind of a personal journey in a personal way? To me, I think it's a, it's a personal thing. But w- one thing I do talk to people about, especially people that are coming up, is, is to really, you, you may be an engineer or you may be a marketing person or you may be uh, a clinical person or regulatory person really take the time earlier, as early as possible in your career to really dive into another area of the business, get out of your comfort zone, hmm. really expand your horizons. Because, you know, as you go on, you will get sort of in deep in the area that you're in, and it'll be harder and harder to do that. You can go to meetings with a number of people in different disciplines, but until you really have the, you know, are able to focus in those areas, take on, have some responsibility, live in those people's shoes, know what they need to go through. That to me is is the thing that I think is the most helpful. Excellent. No, that's good advice. So let's talk about where you are now, uh, CEO of Procerium. You were part of the acquisition by Abbott of St. Jude. You stayed there, it seems, for according to your LinkedIn profile, seven months. I don't know if that's accurate or not. But did you know after that acquisition that you were going to be taking a next step to do something else, maybe becoming a startup CEO? What were your plans at the time of the acquisition? Or was it already kind of scripted that you weren't going to stick around? Yeah. So at the time, I mean, you know, St. Jude was a relatively large company. We had about 18,000 employees now being yeah. uh, acquired by Abbott, which was close to 100,000 employees. And uh, and they just, you know, it was a different sort of time. And it gave me a chance with the acquisition to really think about getting back to roots of a startup company. Yeah. And so was fortunate enough to be able to leave and, you know, take another big risk. What I did was really just, uh, went out, talked to a number of people, uh, was looking for some potential opportunities, talked to a bunch of people on the venture capital side as well. And uh, through some of those conversations, was asked to do due diligence on Procerian from a potential investor that was looking at investing in, in uh, the fundraising round that they were acting oh, against. Oh, so Okay. Did that really, uh, I had heard of Procerian because at the time, back a few years earlier at St. Jude, we had acquired Thoratech, which was an LVAD company, and we'd looked at everything in the MCS space. And so I had heard of them. But digging in, I got really excited about uh, not only the technology, but uh, also because I was really involved in a number of the heart failure programs and technologies uh, at St. Jude. Really interested in heart failure and saw both the very, very large unmet clinical need for these very difficult to treat heart failure patients, as well as, again, being really excited about the technology. I was asked by one of the board members after the due diligence if I'd be interested in joining. They were looking to bring in somebody who had more experience to take the company to the next level, and I was excited to excited to do so. Did it come as a surprise, or did you kind of do the due diligence thinking that, well, maybe, you know, if this all checks out, this is something I might want to be part of? Yeah, I mean, I was, I, I was really uh, excited about the company itself, but hadn't really thought that there was that opportunity there. So it was a little bit of a surprise, but once I came up, things moved along pretty quickly because uh, obviously I'd 
knew everything about the the company through the due diligence and then was able to go meet the team and was really a an easy decision for me. That's great. This may be a question that I regret asking or delete if it doesn't work out, but what is like the number one thing you considered when taking this job? Would you and would you advise others? Are you looking at the tech itself? Are you looking at the team? Are you looking at the market size? And I'm sure it's a it's a combination of all three, but is there one thing that sits at the top of the list? Yeah, I think it I think it really is a you know, a combination of the three. I, going in when I was just looking at any possibility, the three things that made, you know, were were the top on my list were one, is this something that is really going to be impactful to help patients as the baseline? I wasn't really interested in just doing something that was, you know, sort of a new bell and whistle or a next iteration of something. So there's there's that. And then the technology itself. I wanted to make sure that it was something that would be truly innovative and uh, and interesting as as well. Uh, and then the business opportunity is one that, especially as a going into a startup where you know you're going to be needing to raise raise capital, you want to be able to know that you're going to have a, a good sized patient population that will be seen mm. as being attractive. Interesting. All right. Well, let's talk about Procerian itself. Talk a bit about your product, the lead product, Aortix. It's identified as a percutaneous mechanical circulatory support device for use in multiple indications. What is it and how will it be used one day? You hope? Yeah, like you said, the, <laughs> the device has potential to treat a number of different indications. Uh, but the one that we are focused on today are patients who have acute decompensated heart failure who are admitted to the hospital. And these are patients who, when they come into the hospital, they are very, very fluid overloaded. So excess fluid in their lungs, uh, on the lower limbs, swelling of their legs and, and feet, oftentimes also uh, ascites, so fluid in the belly as well. And, and these patients come in and they, they really feel like, uh, essentially like they're drowning and they have very much shortness of breath and are very, very uh, sick, obviously. So today, although there's been lots of advancement in treating chronic heart failure patients, keeping them out of the hospital, either with drugs, with implantable monitors, CRT devices, uh, there really haven't been any significant advancements in treating patients who get to that stage. And about 25% of the patients who are admitted to the hospital with acute decompensated heart failure, which also leads to worsening kidney function as well, or so-called cardiorenal syndrome, about 25% of these patients are not able to be successfully decongested and treated with standard of care therapy, which uh, today is primarily intravenous high-dose diuretics and some other cardiac medications. So there's a large segment of these patients who are not able to be treated successfully, and eventually they're discharged from the hospital, still congested, still fluid overloaded, and they have very, very poor outcomes, both in terms of rehospitalization for heart failure and also for death. 90 days, there'll be somewhere between a third and half the patients will, will either be hospitalized or, or dead. So that's the patient population and the indication that we're going after. And so the aortics device is, as you say, it's a percutaneous MCS device, which means that it can be implanted through a catheter-based procedure. The device itself is an entrainment pump. So it's a uh, device that is basically implanted through the uh, femoral artery in the groin by a catheter and it's fed up and it sits in between the heart and the kidneys in the descending aorta. 
And so unlike the other commercially available PMCS device, Impella, which sits in the, in the heart itself in the left ventricle, the aortics device specifically is designed to sit in the aorta to treat these cardiorenal patients so that it can have an effect on unloading the heart, having the heart need to work less hard to pump blood out, be more efficient that way, and then directly increasing perfusion to the kidneys so that the kidneys can produce more urine output and take off that excess fluid. So is it performing a different function than Impella does? Or is it the same? It's in the same class, but it's really uh-huh. it's really being used to treat patients with a different indication. Impella today is treating two other important indications, so high-risk PCI. So when patients are getting PCI procedures, the stent procedure, who are high-risk, especially needing to maintain uh, coronary perfusion, that's one big indication for them. And a second is uh, cardiogenic shock, where you're not having enough blood coming out of the heart to support the regular systemic function in the head, you know, the brain, other organs as well. So same, I'd say, class of patients, but a very different design, a different location, and going after really focused initially on very different indication for these heart failure patients who are unable to be decongested when they're admitted to the hospital. So just so I understand, so the, the patients you're helping, you hope to help, Currently, they're in the hospital just receiving medication. There's no medical device intervention at the moment. They're just lying in a bed. Everyone's hoping they're getting better and responding to the drugs. Yeah, that's that's correct. There's been other attempts at using other devices, things like ultrafiltration, balloon pumps, but they have not been shown to be effective in, in these patients. So where is Aortix in your development now? You're, you're currently enrolling in a, in a clinical trial, correct? Where are we in the trial process? You've already completed a few, but talk about Drain HF. Yeah, so we completed our uh, pilot study about a year, year and a half ago, which gave us uh, great results in a small number of patients. So that really provided us the data and the confidence that we could move to a pivotal trial for FDA approval, and that's the Drain HF study. And so for Drain HF, we have began enrolling patients recently and are looking to get enrollment in a study design that randomizes patients uh, one-to-one between getting an aortics pump or continuing on with the best standard of care therapy that's available. And uh, we'll enroll a total of 134 patients for the endpoint, which is a combination of looking at acute decongestion in the hospital, as well as 30-day rehospitalization for heart failure and mortality. And we look to complete enrollment sometime around the end of the first quarter, beginning of the second quarter of 2025, and then submit our PMA for FDA approval sometime before the end of, of that year. So Procerion was, was founded in 2005, if I have it correct? That's right. Yeah. 2000, 2005. Yeah. Has it been working on aortics the entire time, or have there been a few iterations or, or different focuses over that time? Yeah, it's been been one program. I, I'd say the, the founder of the company, Reynolds Delgado, is a heart failure cardiologist out of Texas Heart. He came up with the initial focus and the idea for a miniaturized pump that could treat heart failure patients. I'd say that between the founding on paper and really... 2011, when the first real funding happened, it was in a in an incubator, also uh, now called Fannin Studio, and so started there, and and you know really was not having a lot of resources, a lot of people that are looking at it, but we're able to get to a, a good initial prototype, 
And then between, uh, say, 2011 and, and 2018, when I joined the company, there was a lot of engineering work done to, to try to bring the device to a final design. But just to give you an idea, and you know, I think this is true with a lot of especially implantable medical technology and especially medical technology that's going to be in the blood circulation and, and have blood contact is that to have a very miniaturized pump uh, and have it not only do the job that you want it to do, but also to have it be robust and to be durable and not throw off clots that can cause complications. It's, it's a very tough engineering problem. And when I joined the company, they had a good basic design which would have the physiologic effect, but was not able to be durable. And so we took a step back, brought in some other thinking involved, uh, had some parallel paths going on, did a lot of computer modeling, and were able to get to a really robust final design about a year later. And since that time, the, whether we've been in animals or in patients, we've had really great results uh, in terms of, of the pump's function and, and intended use. How long would the pump remain in someone? What it could be days or weeks or however yeah, long it great takes? Question. What, what's, what's it built yeah, for? Yeah, so right now we're indicated for up to seven days of therapy. What we saw in our pilot study was on average, the patients could be decongested. And in, the, in that pilot study, we, on average, patients took off uh, about 11 liters of excess fluid, which uh, put it in perspective, that's almost, you know, that's 24, 25 pounds of excess fluid on average wow. over four days. We're indicated up to seven days for other long-term sort of home ambulatory indications for heart failure patients. We'd look to go much longer than that. And we've had the pump in animals for about five months running well and coming out uh, looking just like it did uh, when it went in. And you said this earlier, but when do you intend to file for the PMA? Right now, we're targeting end of 2025. Okay. So do you have a sense of when? I mean, no one knows for sure, but when would you tell someone you would anticipate a commercial launch? Promising that I won't hold you to it, but what are, yeah, you, what I are think, you building? Yeah, I around? mean, from that stage, I'd say the typical timeline for regulatory approval would be in the sort of 12 to 15-month time frame after, after that. Yeah. This is a challenging metal device area for design and approval and, and clinical trials. I mean, metal device companies as a rule are longer, have longer lives than other startups. This is a particularly long life. What have, what have been the unique challenges for Procerion? I'd call it two challenges. One is, again, getting a design and the complexities associated with that to have a, a pump that not only works, but at that small size, but, but really having it be robust and, and durable. The other big challenge for us was uh, we were just about to start our uh, or just started our pilot study and COVID hit. So, oh, so sure. I'd say the, the COVID impact uh, yeah. overall was a, was a big part in, in the timeline that between then and, then and now. I suppose it's a sign of progress that I didn't even occur to me ask how did COVID <laughs> impact, but clearly it would be a huge impact for sure. So, and, and I want to ask about the financing in a moment. You've raised, I think, two rounds since you've joined, but I'm seeing on your website that you also, you secure Medicare payment codes. Is this for clinical trials? Do you have the codes for that? Or how, do, how does one get clinical codes without having a product approved? Yeah, so we, uh, we basically were looking to get not only for codes in place for uh, reimbursement during the clinical trials, but also to have those codes in place in anticipation of uh, commercial launch. And so one of the things that we were fortunate was that Impella 
uh, was well established and had codes and codes that would have been suitable for us as well, except for one of the characters in the code specifies the anatomic location. And so they had codes that were uh. specific for in the heart. And so we applied for codes that were specific for being in the aorta. So we ran that mm -hmm. process through the typical CMS uh, process and had those codes approved uh, this past August. So just reading through your releases, so you, you joined in 2018, you were named most innovative heart pump technology at the Global Healthcare and Pharmaceutical Awards in that year. And then you were able to raise your $30 million Series D and then got FDA breakthrough device designation. So you, you were rolling and you're right, COVID certainly slowed the roll a bit. Talk about your, your current financing. You, you raised $57 million. I actually wasn't aware of the group of, is it Fanon, Fanon you yes. said? The studios, Fanon Studios. And I want to learn a little bit about, about them. But you also drew a lot from, according to your release, from, from family funds. So talk a bit, if you would, just about the financing process. Again, you had, a, you had a lot of boxes checked. You're in a big market. You're moving forward. What was the process like? I would think you'd be drawing some attention from investors. Yeah. So as you said, I mean, we, we raised around after we had our design freeze in 2019 for $30 million. And that, that round was intended to get us through our pilot study, continued development work and, and get us to the point where we could be submitting for our ID for the drain HF study. So we had to stretch those funds a lot, especially because of COVID mm. and then uh, getting into the current fundraising environment today, um, which is very tough. Things are high interest rates, the number of deals being done gone down quite a bit, and venture capital mm -hmm. firms had to support their own portfolio companies funding them. So yeah, it was a, a much more difficult process to raise the money that we did. And what we wanted to do was raise enough capital so that we could be funded all the way through the completion of the Drain HF pivotal trial and through to the work that happens after that to be able to be in a position to submit our PMA application to FTA. So it was a lot of conversations. We, we've had a strong existing base of investors. So not only uh, uh, Fannin, which is an interesting group that has not only their investment arm, but also runs the, the Fannin Studio, the accelerator incubator that uh, the technology originally came out of. We also had good support from the lead in our previous round, Bluebird, and also from a strategic investor that's been an investor in the company for uh, a number of years. And so having all of that support and then going out again, really uh, leveraging Fannin's relationships, especially with a number of family offices, really was the thing that, that was able to, to drive this to a successful conclusion. Hmm. The family funds, how did you access that market? It's not an easy market to necessarily get around. And this is a big financing for, for family funds to kind of be part of. How were you able to assemble that syndicate? Yeah, really, uh, the Fannin partners uh, really took the lead on that, made the introductions, had the relationships to be able to bring those uh, folks in and then had good discussions. People were excited about the, the market. And, you know, I would say even on the venture capital side, even when people decided that they weren't going to be able to invest in Procerion, Typically, the response was that they really saw the opportunity, they liked the technology, but it was really the, their situation and the uh, current environment and, you know, generally that they would say this company definitely deserves to be funded. It's just we're not in a, in a position to really to do that today. And the strategic, I know it's undisclosed. Does it rhyme with Johnson & Johnson, can you say? 
Yeah, not, <laughs> not, not gonna not gonna mention that. But yeah, not gonna yeah, answer that question. Yeah. Okay, I understand. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm being a wise guy, so I just threw that one out there. That was no leading of by the podcast guest. So all right, well, it's a obviously a, one of those big med tech stories. I mean, a huge problem, great technology. You got the financing to get you farther. So what kind of news do you anticipate we'll be seeing? What would you like us to be talking about in a, in a, in a year or so from now? Where do you hope to be? Yeah, I mean, it's an easy easy answer to that question. That is, uh, hope to be uh, fully enrolled in our pivotal trial with great results and being uh, working our way to prepare the, the application to FDA. Eric, it's a pleasure to talk to you and to hear Priscian's story. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Tom. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Hope you enjoyed our conversations. Please do us a favor. If you haven't already subscribed to the Device Talks Podcast Network, please do. You'll get future episodes of this and our other eight podcasts. Well, not all of them, but you'll get a lot of episodes centered around the medical device industry. Uh, just go to any podcast player and subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. If you want to see our full inventory of podcasts, go to devicetalks.com and find the podcast tab. Once again, join us at Device Talks Boston on May 1st and 2nd. Go to boston.devicetalks.com to register for that. It's going to be a great two days of discussions and networking. Some really cool add-ons we're doing this year, and I think you'll certainly enjoy it. And also, of course, go to devicetalks.com to register for our upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays episode. Finally, uh, please do spread the word about Device Talks. Share this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Let folks know you're listening. Give us a ranking on your podcast player. I'm told it, I'm told it helps uh, to, to folks to find the episode. And uh, certainly, we like hearing what you have to say in that regard. But of course, uh, finally, and maybe most importantly, I think connect with me on LinkedIn. Connect with Chris Newmarker as in a new marker on LinkedIn. We want to be part of your network. We want to be part of your conversations. And we want to, I hope, someday tell your story. So uh, find us both on LinkedIn. And of course, uh, connect with Device Talks and Mass Device. And uh, final thing, one more ask, if you could uh, subscribe to our Device Talks YouTube channel. We're starting to put some content up there as well. So lots going on. We're doing everything we can to get you the best med tech news and insights that we uh, can gather. So uh, I hope you'll uh, join us in all of those places. Thanks again for being part of the Device Talks weekly podcast. As I mentioned at the top, I don't think we'll have an episode next week because I'm going to uh, see the Boilermakers take on the Minnesota Golden Gophers. Uh, But uh, if I'm able to put something together, I will. Otherwise, I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) 